0: You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered, essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive change makers. This episode features an interview with author and street nurse Kathy Crow. This event, called Strategies for Change Tackling Homelessness in Canada, focuses on activists' calls for real change to end homelessness across the country. Kathy Crow is a longtime street nurse and is the author of Dying for a Home Homeless Activists Speak Out and A Knapsack Full of Dreams Memoirs of a Street Nurse. She was a distinguished visiting practitioner based in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. In this episode from Social Justice Week 2021, she discusses her work as a street nurse and the recent encampment evictions by police of unhoused people who were living in Trinity Bellwoods Park in downtown Toronto.
1: I was working in community health centres in downtown Toronto and the East end of Toronto as a nurse practitioner, you know, I had a few struggles like wanting to go back to school to improve my education and health centers not being very supportive. And so that kind of continued (laughs) that kind of tension in the workplace. And these were very progressive workplaces. And then I came to a realization uh, over a period of time that what I was allowed to do as a nurse depended on who the physicians were and how strong the board of directors was in terms of allowing a nurse to work to their full competency. So then around that time of that realization, a little organization called Street Health had just gotten funding and I had been aware of them. I knew the the nurse that that ran it, they were working as volunteers, but they finally got funding. So I applied for a job there. Not because I wanted to do homeless health care, but because it was independent and nursing initiative nursing run. And then once I started there, of course, every day was a learning curve, exciting, interesting, challenging, upsetting the whole nine yards. And I stayed with it ever since at different places. I worked at a few health centers back again, when they began doing homeless healthcare. So it wasn't because I suddenly had this epiphany that I wanted to look after homeless people. I actually had a lot of stereotypes. I thought I would only see older men. I thought because this is 30 years ago, I thought I would only see, you know, people with feet and, you know, alcohol issues and of course the exact opposite was the case. You know, you saw shockingly every health issue that anyone going into a family practice team for their appointment might might have. But then you also saw some really specific interesting clinical issues such as the return of tuberculosis, the emergence of bad bugs, necrotizing fasciitis, which is the fancy clinical term for flesh-eating disease. So when that was in the news with the premier of Quebec that had it, you know, around that time we had a patient that had it. And so it was just like clinically really challenging, but it was all linked to, you know, what we would now call the social determinants of health. We had Independence, because we weren't run by a hospital or doctors. It was nursing driven, community-based, street level, and we were expected to do advocacy, we were told we had to do advocacy. So that meant learning how to talk to the media. That meant learning how to go to city hall and do a, a deputation. It meant learning how to do research, like active research, not boring stuff that sits on a shelf. So. Those components of the work were what was so like multidimensional and really interesting. And, you know, in many ways, it reminded me of nursing from maybe hundred years ago, you know, when nurses were traveling through new immigrant communities in New York City and seeing horrible conditions, but also speaking out about them
2: to try to solve them. And so that's brought you to where we are today.
1: Yeah, still at it in a different way, slightly working in a slightly different way now.
2: I want to turn to an article I read in March from Ricochet, Homeless People Also Have a Right to the City by Carol Ann Souffron. She makes a really poignant comment. She says, we must think of the homeless as also having a right to the city. That is the right to occupy public space and exist in the city. And to me, that's the crux of what's happening in cities across the country right now. According to a recent New York Times story on homelessness in Toronto, there's currently eighty thousand people on the city's waitlist for public housing. Does that sound right to you? How is that possible?
1: That statistic is often misquoted. It's actually over eighty thousand, but it's households, not individuals. Okay. And that and that is accurate, but it's over eighty thousand households. Oh my God. Yeah. So that so means you- more. So you have that situation, right? Where people are on that waiting list, sometimes for five to 10 years, which means that in the meantime, they're living in either slum conditions or unsafe conditions, or they're doubled up with other people. And that includes obviously families with children. And so then you have the shelter system, and then you have people <laughs> sleeping outside, and then you have people you know, who might be considered hidden as homeless um so it's astronomical that the extent
2: of the problem across the country but
1: those are the toronto numbers it
2: is astronomical and i'm worried that we got here I, I i just don't know how we could possibly get to a place like this well and still consider ourselves civilized you know exactly and of course
1: when the pandemic hit pre-pandemic of course we had the 2008 recession and really an ongoing recession maybe not claimed as such by economists, but you know, the economy has continued to be poor and poor people are paid poorly if they're working. So you have all these factors that have continued to push people into homelessness or housing precarity. So we had that building up to 2019, 2020, and then the pandemic hit. And by all accounts, more and more people are falling into homelessness through evictions, through leaving their housing because they can no longer pay for it and going and staying with family members or going out of the big cities to find a cheaper place to live or falling into homelessness. And the research shows that people that are in encampments and people who are entering the shelter system by and large are local people. Like they're not zooming into Toronto from Halifax, they're local people and they're new to the shelter system they haven't been homeless like 10 years as others have been that have been in the shelter system so that's a big big emergency and of course with the pandemic you know I love ricochet because they've done such important articles and that article you referenced talks about human rights and Of course, there are other people like Lelani Farha, who was the U.N. Canadian lawyer, who was the U.N. rapporteur on the right to adequate housing. Many people have talked about rights, and specific to the pandemic, the right to not be evicted, the right to stay safe where you live, and the right to not be evicted from public space. And that's the tension in Toronto right now,
2: public space and encampments. Right. So let's turn to the, the social media feed blow up uh, on June 22nd, when the homeless were forcibly evicted from Trinity Bellwoods mm-hmm. Park, an encampment that's been developing for over a year. Let's start with this, a description of the encampments. I, I keep getting uh, mixed messages from people, you know, if it's somebody who's not very well informed, they say, well, these they've just started here. Well, apparently that's not true. And uh-huh. that is dangerous and violent. And apparently that's not true.
1: Yeah, well, I've been I've been to a couple of them for large kind of community events and press conferences. I'm not as familiar um, with the individuals, to be honest, because I'm not doing street outreach right now. So the encampments began before the pandemic, but they exploded in numbers once the pandemic hit. In Toronto, there are four or five large encampments but there are many all around the city as there always have been for a long time. People were going into what I call deeper hiding, such as living under the highways, you know, down by the Lake short, the Gardner expressway or right. uh, down what's called Rosedale Valley road. So right under people the were, yeah. Yeah. And so some of those began to, to grow quite extensively when the pandemic hit. And then there are, uh, about four or five major parks including near Lamport Stadium, including Trinity Bellwoods, Alexandra Park, and Cherry Beach, um, a couple of others. Uh, And those are the main large encampments. Now, they have varied in size, depending on what's what's been going on around policing and other issues. So at times, there have been maybe 100 people at an encampment. Wow. Um, But then as the city opened hotel shelters, there was a lot of back and forth between the city streets to homes, workers and others. And some people were pressured. Some people more willingly did go into hotel shelters. Some people were provided temporary housing. And there's a huge argument around what those numbers were, but essentially some encampments have decreased in size case in point Trinity Bellwoods. It's a very popular, very large park in the downtown core of the city. On the date of the eviction last week, there were between 20 and 25 people living there. That's all. And that's because some people had agreed to go into shelter, hotels, or elsewhere. That The main encampments that I've referenced have all been given eviction notices. And we did know that on this Tuesday last week, the eviction was going to be enacted. We pretty much knew it was going to be a militarized operation because of what had happened a few weeks earlier at another encampment and all hell broke loose as you reference. (laughs) And so it was an operation I've described in my rabble blog. It included, you know, police drone, it included what are called the public order group of the police, which are commonly known as the riot squad. It included mounted police. It included, um a massive security effort by both private and city of Toronto, corporate security. And then it included the workers whose job it was. And these are, I'm very upset that that, that, of this component as well. These are unionized workers, uh, with two locals, Toronto QP workers, both inside and outside workers whose job that day was to physically remove people. Uh, arranged for them to get into a shelter hotel, if they would agree, and physically remove their stuff. And that meant destroying and putting into garbage tents and personal belongings it was extremely traumatic for people.
2: Yes, it would be. Uh, so uh, let's look at some of these numbers here, because it, it surprises me when you say there were only 20 to 25 people. How many police showed up to just to move 25 people?
1: Well, from the images I've seen, it looks like there were probably well over a hundred. It was a massive operation. Nobody knows the actual numbers, but the footage speaks for itself. There were police on rooftops, scanning the site. There was a high level of surveillance as well. The messaging from the city is quite sophisticated. You know, they have a very large communications department. They talked about it being peaceful. No one was hurt. There were a few arrests made. A journalist was arrested and Driven around in a police vehicle for about an hour and a half before he was finally let go outside of a police station, that concerned the National Journalist Association. Well, it rather should, because that right? sounds like harassment. Exactly. There was a United Church minister I know that went who treated people who had been pepper sprayed. So the in you know the the statement that nobody was hurt is not the case. And you know it happened in a period of time when. We're trying to understand the impact of colonization and what has happened to Indigenous people. And the population in encampments includes Indigenous people, and it includes women who have been traumatized in some way. There are numerous reports of police sexually harassing both the protesters, the supporters who came that day to help defend people's space. You know, Mayor Tory has suggested that he would welcome an inquiry into the event. But the bottom line is there's three or four more encampments that are on their list to do next. So what's going to happen next? 20 to 25 people. I don't know the exact number. A small number did accept to go into a hotel shelter that night and others disappeared. And literally the last thing you want to do in a pandemic is to disperse people. Yes, this was a community that supported each other. And the big question is, if if somebody did accept a room in a hotel shelter, is that going to lead them to housing quicker than the 80,000 households on the waiting list already? Like, how is that going to change their life? We have had significant number of COVID outbreaks in the hotel shelters. Now you or I, you know, people listening might imagine, oh, okay, it's a hotel. Wow you know, if you go on holiday and you're staying in a hotel because you're just coming back to the room at night after going to tourist things. Okay. But if you're in a hotel shelter, that's your life. And I know people that have been in a hotel shelter now for 12 months. And you know, you don't have extra spending money. You're relying on the food that's catered to the place. We're hearing a lot of reports. That's pretty bad. You have Unauthorized bed checks that happen. So you could be in your room sleeping at two in the morning. You might be a, a woman and staff that operate the shelter are allowed to come into your room. I guess to see if you're, they call the wellness checks. So there's a lot of problems. If you're in an encampment and you're put in a hotel shelter, you can't take all your belongings. You're allowed two bags. Uh, you might be put in a hotel shelter room with somebody else that you don't know. These are the things you have to imagine. TVs might have been removed from the hotel shelter, infection control practices may not be up to
2: standard. This is what we've heard. Oh, Kathy, I'm so sad for these people. It's no wonder they don't want to go. Exactly.
1: And, you know, there's no plan for what to do with the hotel shelters when the COVID outbreak is calm or over. In New York City last week, there's an emergency room doctor that I follow, and she's been so good at doing regular updates on homelessness. Uh, They're beginning to close their hotel shelters in New York City and putting people back into regular shelters. And similar to the school situation we have in Canada, we do not have good standards for uh, HEPA filtration and air quality in shelters or schools. That's a discussion happening across the country. Schools are opening in September and it's very unclear how they're going to be made safer in terms of air quality. The same as for shelters. The discussion isn't even happening yet for shelters.
2: No, I bet it's not. So, yeah. Uh, one of my friends commented on the abundance of uh, um, empty apartments in Toronto and the lack of affordable housing. What can we do about that? Should we be lobbying for price freezes and caps?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a few things happening. One is um, an effort to try to have something called inclusionary zoning so that new buildings that are established, have to have a certain percent of units that are affordable, but I'm not sure that that will mean rent geared to income. I'm not convinced that will make a huge difference in the long-term. Um, around the vacancy rate for cities and towns across the country that have a high vacancy rate in existing apartments or condos, they could be like the number one solution in the short term. But only if we get a federal and provincial matched program for rent supplements. That was the magic that helped house the Tent City people from the early 2000s when they were evicted. That was under the era of the colorful Mel Lastman as mayor okay. of Toronto. That was a mega encampment, but it wasn't called an encampment, it was called Tent City. 140 people. Again, very similar brutal eviction with police and a fence going up around the site. But the outreach around it was international because that had been planned to be the site of the Lipping village. So first of all, there was a lot of protests, unions were supportive. We had international media, and then we had a bureaucrat at city hall that pretty much was given free reign to develop a solution that would solve the scandal for Mel Lastman. And what he came up with was he found money that was sitting at the province. Maybe it was a combination of federal, provincial money. And he turned it into a pilot program for rent supplements so that people's income would be topped up so that they could afford an apartment in the private sector because there's nothing available in the not-for-profit sector and they already have their own waiting list. So this was not to bump that list. This was to use the private sector And so if somebody was on a a senior's pension, they would get a certain dollar top-up that would allow them to rent an apartment in a private Parkdale building. And I always tell the story of Dry, who was a very famous figure from Kent City. He lived in that apartment until he died this year. So from 2002 till he lived in that very same apartment and it was supported by a community agency in Toronto called Woodgreen that provided the housing support workers to help kind of keep negotiating and making sure the project was working. And by that, I mean, you know, somebody might've moved into a place that was infested with bed bugs and they would have to leave that housing worker would help make that happen. Literally I tweeted about this yesterday and we're wanting to talk with the federal government, with Adam Vaughn and, you know, we're working with some progressive city councilors with advocacy groups to try to begin this dialogue, because there was a really serious gap in what happened on 22nd with the brutal eviction. Afterwards, I didn't hear any outrage from the mayor about the fact that his city was in this position because the federal government and the province weren't stepping up enough. And that's what we need. We need more outrage from the politicians to, to bargain for and to fight for the dollars that can help create housing.
2: Yeah, we need a lot of outraged advocates right now. Let's go back to the eviction for a minute, because there was a statement yesterday by the Shelter and Housing Justice Network, and they were basically asking the city to put a moratorium on encampment evictions. Would you like to comment on that? Oh, sure. I'm very familiar with the statement. I'm
1: on the steering committee of that group. Oh, I was so yeah. <laughs> I had asked them to phrase a statement. Everybody was in crisis last week responding to the encampment, but it was very important that organizations speak out and put their position on the radar. And I'm, I'm also pleased that Social Planning Toronto, which is a more the think tank kind of group, they came out with a statement as well. Yeah, so uh, we are calling for a moratorium. We're calling for commitments to follow the platform of how to deal with encampments that Lelani Farha has mapped out. And as I mentioned, Lelani, she's like an international human rights housing advocate. She's Canadian. She mapped out over a year ago how encampments should be dealt with, in particular in a pandemic. The Center for Disease Control, Many, many organizations say you do not scatter people, evict people, make them more homeless during a pandemic. So the formula is all there. A few city councilors, such as Councillor Mike Layton and Josh Matlow, tried to convince city council to follow some of this. The steps are really there. You continue to do outreach. You continue to dialogue with people. You listen to them. You find out what their concerns are, and you keep doing that while you're trying to find a safe, acceptable housing solution. You don't just throw in the police to move people. Some of those attempts were just voted down by city council uh, about two weeks ago, and some of them would not have cost a penny because it would have been working with existing agencies and outreach workers, and it was just to look at the possibility of how to do that. So we've had freedom of information uh, reports done that show the city's shelter system is extremely violent. You were asking about encampment violence, and certainly no community is perfect. (laughs) But in, in the shelters, we now have a high level of documented incidents that's been increasing in the shelter system. So if people in encampments are saying, I don't feel safe... We have to listen to them and look yes. at the evidence and figure yes. out other ways. And we should be providing the basic public health measures in encampments that include toilets, running water, garbage pickup, the city services that everyone else gets to help keep the encampments clean and tidy and safe. Because in the meantime, there's no housing. So we're right. just trying
2: to survive. That's right. And if we go back to Carol Anne Soufra's comment originally, these are citizens of the city and they that's have the right. right, cheap public space, and we should be Absolutely. enabling them to, to live safely. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, many, in
2: fact, are also struggling
1: with health disabilities. So you could argue that there's also another human rights factor there to protect and support people.
2: Yes. Well, that's naturally going to flow if you're homeless. You know, if you're feeling precarious, then you're going to have mental health issues. But I think also a lot of people struggle with addictions and that's one of their coping mechanisms. And that worries me that that we blame the addictions as part of the the root cause. But I think addictions are often the coping mechanism. And so we have to help them to find safer coping mechanisms maybe. But I also noticed yesterday that the city has now bulldozed a community garden around the community greenhouse that's at Trinity Bellwoods. And they've got signs about park remediation. How is this a, a good response to a community initiative to make the park healthier and and more inclusive
1: yeah i just i just saw that this morning That greenhouse it was like a large glassed in greenhouse garden yeah, I used to ride my bike to work past that thing every morning and think how lovely it was well i think somebody's probably gonna pay for that i think that <laughs> that must have been a mistake <laughs> yeah so they're calling the park remediation now it's just making everybody mad it's making You know, the mums, seniors and people, everyone's mad, like, because the right to use the park has now been removed for everyone. And, you know, I think Mayor Tory is going to wear this. You know, I've seen extreme, extreme support from all sectors. You know, if you had a television on that day or have read a newspaper since, I mean, it's just evident that
2: it was a disaster. Okay. What about the idea of the tiny house community? So last year, Eliel C. Wright, mm-hmm. he had a, this wonderful idea of building a little tiny house community, and that again was halted by City Hall. Would that not have addressed a lot of this problem?
1: Well, a few things. When I mentioned Tent City from 20 years ago, uh, we actually were going to relocate Tent City to tiny homes using a model developed by an architect that's working in South Africa in the um, I'm not, you can use the right term, but the shantytown communities there where people would actually build their own modular house and it's worked successfully around the world. So, and we we brought in tiny homes to Chant City as well. 20 years later, over the years, I've had many people send me descriptions and diagrams for things like this. And I've always actually opposed it. Although I've got coffee table books that I bought over the years because I'm intrigued by it. To be very honest, I've always opposed it because I always felt that we should be not accepting less that we should be fighting for an algorithm and getting real money for a house. But when Khalil began creating his and he called them tiny shelters, not homes, which I really respected him for.
2: Interesting. I,
1: I supported him one hundred percent and he got terrific support from people in the area. He raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many, many volunteers began building them with him. And then of course they became so prominent and they were so successful. You could actually uh, not have to use an external heat source to keep them warm, which meant that they were very fire safe, despite city's propaganda that they were a fire hazard. He put locks on the door, windows, smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors. People who lived in them gave the rave reviews. Uh, A woman was interviewed describing how she felt so safe now she didn't log all stuff with her every day she can leave her pills her medicine everything and lock the door when she left so you know you when you hear that it spoke to the success I can only say that I presume that Mayor Tory sees this as an insult to his his regime because this comes from somewhere this is not just the city parks department deciding they don't like them it comes from very high up and the city is taking him to court to get an injunction so that he cannot place the one-city property. Having said that, uh, again, going back to John Van Nostrand, uh, he and others, long-standing architects, in this crisis of homelessness, have really tried to convince the city to create a modular, tiny home-type place that could be built up, it could, be, it could grow, it could be expanded. So, for example, a bachelor unit could become a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom as people's circumstances change. The city has repeatedly turned him down or not shown interest. I'm pretty sure he's doing something like that in Hamilton. Kitchener-Waterloo has also, on their own, developed a tiny little community. I don't know much about it. I haven't been there. I think somebody allowed their property to be used for it. I think it can only be successful if there's adequate resources put there to ensure safety and to ensure community building takes place. You can't just like park people in them. And so I'm, I'm kind of of mixed opinion, uh, in a way we're doing something kind of halfway, which is the city is building modular homes. Now, uh, they're doing about four or five projects of modular homes in the city where each project will have, you know, around 40 units. If any of your listeners are interested, you know, just Google city of Toronto, modular homes, I would never say no to them. We should do them because they can be put up within a year. Like we've had projects that since the pandemic started, some of them have already opened, there's one in Scarborough, there's one in downtown Toronto. And they, one of them even has an elevator in them. Like it's, they're two stories, they're modular, they're British Columbia is way ahead of us in developing this kind of throwing up fast housing. But I wonder how they're going to look in 20 years. And I also wonder why we think it's okay to ghettoize everybody. Like to me, it's like ghettoizing everyone. It's not like St. Lawrence neighborhood. That's a mixed community. You've got low-income people, seniors, you've got people that are working. Well, a friend of mine uses the term apartheid housing, and that's what it feels like. I know that's a strong term, but only people from homelessness can go and live there. To me, that's setting up for failure down the road. Mixed income housing is way better than ghettoizing everybody. So I worry that down the road, we're going to look at this and see it as such a bad experiment. Similar to like, you know, the 1930s, 40s park development that was housing, you know, like Regent Park, Lawrence Park, all across the country, there was this um, urban planning way of thinking of creating these communities that they were all called park, (laughs) you know, they were all supposed to sound and look really pretty, but, and roads were cut off. There were no roads going through them and, uh, no grocery stores nearby. It was very, and then it was seen as a dismal failure. So they're now all being redeveloped. Regent park is being redeveloped. Lawrence Heights park is being redeveloped. And these are huge, primarily Toronto community housing, social housing buildings, but now they're being integrated and it's not all perfect, but the original was very bad.
2: The original was a mistake. So, I worry much of our housing is a mistake. It sounds very temporary to me and also dismissive. You know, we'll just put them in a corner and, and hope that they become hidden and we don't have to worry about it right. again. Right. Kathy, what should we be doing at the policy level? I don't understand the politics right now. And I think that as everyday citizens, there must be things that we can do to advocate for change. Well,
1: this is a big generalization, but I say it from having given so many talks over the years. Canadians are not so engaged with the political process. I go into classrooms and I talk to groups and I do guest speaks all the time. And I say, who's your city councilor? Usually people tell me a name, but usually it's their MP or their MPP or their MLA. And so I encourage people to just find out who their people are, you know, and, and get involved at that level with respect to housing. There are so many points of advocacy that are needed. You know, minimum wage, social assistance rates, trying to protect the existing housing that we have, better jobs, better pensions so that our seniors can still be protected and be in housing. But the big number one issue is national housing program, which we had until 1993. And when we had that program, it was a federal program. It was like Medicare. It was for everybody. 20,000 units were built a year. Across the country provinces had to kick in money so you had co-op housing and you know British Columbia has continued to do a much better job than the rest of us across the country and Quebec as well but overall across the country we really have not had a federal program and the trouble is that we we have a very astute federal government right now that launched a national housing strategy in 2017 Mm -hmm. So that sounds great, right? National housing strategy, but it's not a fully funded program that commits to building rent geared to income housing or co-op housing, housing for seniors, student housing, housing that's accessible, housing for families. It's really hit and miss. So I, I think the pandemic provides an opportunity for us to really clamor for housing down the road, but it also means that people have to sift through smoke and mirrors, you know, to understand what's really there. And unfortunately, Canada adopted an American style of housing called housing first and housing first also sounds wonderful, but we always believed in housing first for people, but housing first in the context of the American model applied to Canada means we look at housing people that are homeless, that have mental illness or addictions. And of course that's important. But everyone needs affordable housing (laughs) and that means families. It means workers and uh, the union movement in Canada has been so diminished in recent years that we hardly, we don't really see a a revitalization of national housing Mm -hmm. movements. So back in the nineties and early two thousands, we had demonstrations, advocacy happening at a national level with national churches, with national unions, with national advocacy groups. And we have to build up to that level again. So, I mean, at the the very grassroots level, find an advocacy group in your community that's doing something on housing. Small things can happen at the local level, but it's really important to understand the big picture so that you can be part of helping to support groups that are fighting for housing. There's a wonderful book I want to make reference to, written by Seth Klein from British Columbia. I've never met him, but he's a political economist. He wrote a book called *The Good War*, and it's about all the things that happened as a result of World War II, that led to a shipbuilding industry, that led to national housing program. I have a little piece in his book. I mentioned that book because it shows you that an enormous crisis like that war, or the climate crisis, which is what he focuses mostly on, or this pandemic, can lead to huge things. That's what gives me a little bit of hope right now.
2: Yeah, that's where I want to leave it. When I watched the evictions the other day, the heartening part was that I saw so many advocates out there sitting peacefully and watching and filming and doing what they felt they could do. And that's the kind of citizenry that I'm so proud to be part of. And it is heartening, but it still doesn't feel like a democracy. I want us to be better. Do you think we can?
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: But, you know, as we're learning with
1: the uh, colonization and torture genocide that has happened of indigenous people. We have to wake up and have a voice. We have to wake up and be responsible. We have to be engaged. People should take part in the electoral process, but also in grassroots movements, because not everything will happen through electoral politics. In fact, you know, in my life, uh, I've really only seen good things happen thanks to governments or politicians, when there's been a grassroots movement. So we're, we're definitely going to see that with long-term care in Canada. Yes. I think we'll see it in a few other areas, with school and education. Uh, I'm hoping housing as well. But in the meantime, a lot of dirty things are happening. A lot of horrific crimes are happening against people intentionally. Without the leadership, you know, in a democratic situation that you're referring to to protect human rights. You know, I think education is really important at the youngest level and learning how to take part. Um, I mean, I'm situated at what we're now calling University X, which is Ryerson University. I'm in the politics department there. And I really see the value of experiential education and learning. Yes. And and the more that we can actually apply learning opportunities for people in all levels of education to actually doing things on the ground. And I'm seeing more and more of that. And that teaches you the skills for you to be a good citizen down the road. So we, we operate something called the Jack Layton Leadership School and a Social Justice Week. And it's very experiential, you know, so that people can actually go and take part in events and They can support the Encampment Support Network or another advocacy group. And you learn how to distinguish from what a politician's really saying and what he really means, he or she. You learn how to write a a media statement. You learn how to, you know, all the advocacy that happened that I was involved in from day one of the pandemic was on Twitter, pretty much. Well, that's a wild thing, right? But no offense to anyone listening, but if you're choosing... (laughs) To stay away from Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, reconsider it because those are some of the modems now for engagement. It's strange to say, I mean, that and Zoom, I mean, really, and hopefully it won't always stay that way. Hopefully we'll be taking to the streets again. Black Lives Matter actually showed us that we could still do that in the pandemic last summer. Yes. I'm hopeful today.
2: (laughs) Yes, as am I. Kathy, thank you so much for your hard work, and thank you for coming and speaking with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, it's brilliant suggestions.
0: That was author and street nurse Kathy Crow speaking on Strategies for Change, Tackling Homelessness in Canada from Social Justice Week 2021. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening.